After everything we've learned about COVID-19, we still don't know how it started. Here's UCD Professor of Virology, Dr. Gerald Barry. The main two theories are what one would term the lab leak theory and then the natural origins theory, which would be that the virus is coming from an animal or it has jumped over from maybe a bat through an intermediate host and then into humans. And then there's a lab leak theory, which would be that the virus came from a lab, either engineered in a lab purposely or was discovered and, and studied in the lab, and then it leaked out into Wuhan and then spread from there. The two theories have coexisted for quite some time, but the lab leak hypothesis has been bolstered since the head of the FBI last week said... The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. He wouldn't reveal what evidence he has to support the claim, and his comments come amid tensions between the US and China. We urge the US to respect science and facts, stop politicising origin tracing, stop turning origin tracing into something about politics and intelligence. So what does the science say and what are the facts? I'm Aideen Finnegan and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, we ask Dr Barry to make sense of the claims and counterclaims. Okay, let's start with the lab leak then. So what evidence is there for the lab leak theory? The main, I suppose, theory would be that there is a research lab based in Wuhan, um, about a 30, 35 minute drive from the animal market where we know that the kind of initial outbreak of COVID happened. Um, So there's a a research facility there. We know within that research facility they were doing high containment laboratory studies on coronaviruses. And it's one of the major research facilities in China where this kind of work was going on. Um, That is a big coincidence, isn't it? Well, I don't know if I call it coincidence. There are many labs around the world that work on coronaviruses. But yes, I mean, if you're looking for a lab leak theory, it suits because there's a lab close to where the outbreak happened. Absolutely. And we know that this lab was working on coronaviruses. But the coronavirus field is massive. And the kind of work that was going on there, there's no evidence to suggest that they were working with anything that was um, uh, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused COVID. So the evidence that we have from this lab is that, for example, they released a a batch of sequences of viruses that they were working on. Um, They released that in 2018. And that batch of sequences had no evidence of any virus that was similar to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, There were many viruses in there, but the vast majority of them were similar to the original SARS. Uh, The original SARS was an outbreak back in around 2004. And so they were clearly studying coronaviruses. They were very focused on understanding SARS, but there's no evidence to point towards the fact that they were uh, working on a a virus that was SARS-CoV-2-like. And and they're two very distinct viruses. You know, they're kind of grouped, we call them coronaviruses, but actually there's a whole range of different types of coronaviruses. So just because you're working on one type doesn't necessarily mean you're working or even closely working on, on, on the other type. Now, on that point, Jer, I, I guess China is sort of known as a, an authoritarian regime where information and access to it is not always very easily gained. 
Yeah, and and that's where the challenge arises because I, I think it's fair to say that there is a suppression of information from probably every country across the world, actually, if we look at it. But there's a suggestion that China has suppressed information and conspiracy theories, I suppose, would point towards, well, if there was evidence, it would be suppressed. And so it's not a surprise that we don't have evidence that this lab was working on a SARS-CoV-2-like virus. Because any country that was the origin of a worldwide pandemic might suppress that information. To, well, I suppose to an extent. But then I would look at that and say, well, if they're trying to suppress it, why did they not suppress it completely from China and block our knowledge of it, you know, uh, starting in Wuhan in the first place? OK, it's, it's not great if it came from a lab, but it's also not great if it came from a, an animal market where they were allowing wild animals to be sold uh, um, and allowing uh, animals to be farmed for, for meat and things like that. So neither from like looking at it from the outside, thinking about it from a Chinese government point of view, actually neither origin is a very good look for China in general. And so whether you point at the lab leak theory or the animal origin theory, suppressing one and not suppressing the other, to me, doesn't really make sense. So one theory that's gained some traction online and in some reporting, and I caveat that with, because when you say it's gained traction online, that might suggest it's a load of conspiracy theorists, but it's it's coming from, you know, well-respected scientists in places like Rutgers University, Oxford and Stanford, and, and it goes like this, that in 2013, researchers from the Wuhan Virology Lab visited an abandoned mine shaft in China's Yunnan province, where a number of people had caught a mysterious type of pneumonia and died. And there, the researchers took samples found a virus which was called RATG13, took this home to their lab, did experiments on it, including gain-of-function research, which had turned into SARS-CoV-2, which then leaked and caused the pandemic, all of which was then covered up. So, first of all, could you explain what gain-of-function research is? Sure. So, gain-of-function essentially means that you, um, you take a virus and you bring it into the lab, you expose it in a Petri dish, uh, to perhaps, uh, if it's used to uh, infecting bats, you expose it to, say, human cells in a Petri dish. And you give the virus time to evolve and to essentially gain an ability in that new species, or at least an, an ability to infect cells from that new species. Why on earth would you do that? One of the key things science is trying to understand or virology is trying to understand is what allows a virus to jump from one species to another. Because if we want to protect ourselves from the next pandemic um, or if we want to be able to monitor viruses effectively that are circulating in animals, we need to know how close they are to moving into humans or can they ever move into humans and what uh, changes in their genome potentially give them that ability to move into humans and start to cause disease. It sounds like a really good example of playing with fire, is it not? There's a lot of controversy around it. Um, people have done this with influenza as well. And again, there was a lot of controversy around that. And, and um, there's a famous example of it in the Netherlands a few years ago where the Dutch government got involved and blocked the publication of a study temporarily because they were worried about the information that was coming out because it was a study that had been done on flu where they had um, infected animals and, and passaged it through a number of different animals, allowing the virus to evolve to become more efficient at moving between animal and animal in a laboratory setting. And essentially, the virus did improve its ability to move and, and transmit between those animals. The idea would be that those genetic changes are essentially a fingerprint for the virus to um, also move potentially between humans more efficiently. If that kind of knowledge 
becomes commonplace, then there's an argument to say that from a bioterrorism point of view, if you know how a virus uh, or at least what recipe is needed to create a virus that's super effective at moving through humans or, or causing disease in humans, then that gives bioterrorism an ability to create that virus. Um, because we don't really fully understand what gives a virus absolute ability to cause disease in humans or move between humans. And so the more we learn, the more potential there is to create a weapon where you have a virus that's perfectly suited to causing disease or, uh, and or a pandemic. And so one school of thought would be, you know, we don't want to know that and we don't want people to know that. And so we really shouldn't be dabbling in that kind of stuff at all and just leave it as a black box and a full stop. The other school of thought would be, actually, we need to know that information. We need to understand how viruses evolve to become more virulent in humans, evolve to be able to jump from an animal into a human. Because in an ideal world, we'll be then able to surveil, let's say, viruses that are circulating in bats or in chickens or whatever it might be, look at their genetic code, and based on that, predict, okay, we don't need to worry about virus A because it's too far away genetically from being able to infect humans. But actually, this virus that we found now in, say, this bat, genetically, just a couple of more steps, and that has a potential now to cause disease in humans. So that's a virus that we maybe need to develop a vaccine against or develop a drug that if it ever did jump into humans, we're ready for it. So what do you make of that claim, that scientists in the Wuhan lab were doing that kind of research on a SARS-like virus they discovered somewhere, and when that escaped, it caused the pandemic? I think there's two main kind of ways of looking at it. One was something designed and built in the lab to, to infect humans. I think we can probably rule that out pretty easily. Looking at the design of the virus, it just doesn't really make sense that if you were going to do that, you wouldn't design SARS-CoV-2. But the other theory, which is the, the kind of more gain-of-function idea, which is you take something from a bat that is close to being able to cause disease in humans or, or infect humans. You bring it into the lab and you basically expose it to human cells in a Petri dish and you give it time to essentially learn and evolve to become better at infecting human cells. I, I think that kind of possibility, I don't think we can rule that out. I think it's highly unlikely. And based on all the evidence we have, there's zero suggestion that they were working with any virus that was leaning towards SARS-CoV-2. Because as I say, this lab in Wuhan was publishing data about the viruses they were working with. And remember, prior to the end of 2019, early 2020, there was absolutely no reason for them to withhold any information because they didn't know what they were working with, like if they were working with something that looked like SARS-CoV-2. We'd never seen anything like that in the human population before, so they had no idea that that was going to be the next pandemic. So why would they suppress it? And so when they're publishing on a regular basis the viruses that they're working with and telling the world, right, these are the batch of viruses we have at the moment, why on earth would they suppress, you know, a virus, that, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 and keep it in the background just on the off chance that it might become a pandemic virus? To me, it just doesn't make sense that they would even consider doing that. Okay, that's the lab leak theory. So what evidence is there for the other theory, that it came from animals? I think this evidence is much stronger. So we know that there was live animals being sold in this market. 
We know that there are pictures documenting uh, a number of different mammals that have the potential we now know to be infected by SARS-CoV-2 and to transmit SARS-CoV-2 being sold in that market around the time of the outbreak and prior to the outbreak as well. We also know that when you look at the evidence of the early infections of the disease, which happened around the end of November, early December 2019, they all had an association with the wet market. They didn't necessarily have an an association, for example, with the lab. And so the market was very much the centre of the outbreak. We also know that because swabs were taken throughout the market, where they would go in with essentially what looked like cotton buds, rub it on different surfaces and test them for for evidence of the virus being there. When they did that in the market, where they were most likely to find evidence of the virus was in and around the places where the live animals were sold. Because there were different regions of the market. Some places had live animals, some didn't. In the places where there were no live animals, they were very, it was very hard to find evidence of the virus. In places in the market where the live animals were, that's where all the virus was. So that, that's circumstantial evidence, clearly, but it points towards the virus being associated with where those live animals were being sold. And that it jumped to a, a human from being slaughtered at the market? That's the suggestion. When you look at evidence of where swabs were taken around the machinery that was used to, for example, pluck feathers or to kill the animals or to, yeah, to cut up the animals, chopping boards, all those kind of materials used they were all covered in virus as well. As opposed to the animal breathing the particles? It could have happened in both senses. We know with mink, for example, in mink farms where the mink are kept in very close contact with each other and also you have animal handlers that are in close contact with them, we know mink can transmit it to those workers and that would be through air-to-air contact and that could then be to the workers, to the people that are selling the animals, that are processing them uh, and then potentially to customers as well. What Other evidence is there then for an animal origin? If it came from a lab, that would suggest that most likely way it got out of the lab was it infected a worker in the lab and that worker then moved out and basically spread and and infected other people. Those workers didn't just move from the lab to to the market and back to the lab again. They would have gone home. They would have gone on public transport. They would have moved around the city. We know based on what COVID does now and did throughout the pandemic, the most likely way of you being infected is being affected by the people you live with or that you're in close contact with on things like public transport. And so, but yet there's no evidence of any of that happening in the early days of the infection. It's all associated with the market. So that to me again points to the market is at the heart of this. And so then when you look at the environment of the market and you had all these mammals that we know can carry SARS-CoV-2 and can be infected by it, and you look at the evidence suggesting that it wasn't randomly scattered throughout the market because, you know, if it was people that was moving it initially, you would think, well, maybe the people would have moved throughout throughout the market. That wasn't the case. It was focused very much on where the wild animals were being, were being sold. So that all really does point towards uh, this idea that it originated from those animals. But as I say... We don't have a smoking gun, we, you know, because when you look at that and you say, well, OK, if the animals have it in the market, how did they get it? So then you think, well, potentially they got it from uh, uh, the farm wherever they were grown outside of the city. So you can think, OK, well, let's go back to the farm where they were from and see if we can find it as well, because that would make sense, right? Uh, that wasn't possible to do because within weeks of the outbreak happening, 
all the markets were shut down and all the farms where the animals were being uh, grown, essentially, were all shut down as well. And all those animals were culled. So all that evidence was destroyed very early on before opportunities okay. were available to get out there and sample from those animals. So that line of evidence is gone. Mm. So we can't really go retrospectively back and look at that. Coming up, why are US government agencies saying they think COVID escaped from a lab? And could a pandemic in birds become a problem for humans? Welcome back. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Aideen Finnegan. I'm talking to virologist Dr. Gerald Barry about the origins of COVID-19. Did it jump into humans from an animal or did it escape from a lab? The lab leak theory, maybe a year or two years ago, was still roundly dismissed as kind of conspiracy theory stuff. But it's been given recent credence due to the FBI director, Christopher Wray, saying that it was most likely of lab origin. I don't know like who he is as head of the FBI to say that. And the Department of Energy said that it could have, but could only reach a low confidence conclusion. Yeah. Who are these people to say that? On the back of, of, well, Donald Trump initially, but also Joe Biden, they've been instructed to investigate this and to try and find out where, where it came from. And the WHO also sent a team, the World Health Organization also sent a team to try and find out where it came from. The WHO's report suggested it was an animal origin. A number of different departments within the US have suggested it's animal origin. But in as you say, in recent weeks, two departments, uh, Department of Energy and the FBI have come out and said, we actually think it might be a lab leak. Uh, but we're not going to give you the evidence We're going because it's uh, under restriction or, or, or at the moment. And so, of course, that sets all the theories off again. Mm. Um, it's difficult to comment on what the FBI have said because we can't see any evidence. They've just come out and made this um, uh, to an effect, a, a kind of a throwaway comment to an extent. Yeah, I mean, they're Without cops, really though. substantiating they're, they're not intelligence in, in the Well, you the presume that they're, that they're digging into it appropriately and they're employing um, appropriate experts to, to investigate this. And you hope, I suppose, that they're talking to each other, these different um, uh, organizations within the US government and, and sharing information to an extent. Um, and so it's interesting that different departments within the US government are contradicting each other in their opinions. Um, and until I suppose we see the evidence that they have, which must be new evidence beyond what we've seen already, it's difficult to really comment on it or, or draw any conclusion about what they're saying. If they have new evidence that is leaning them in that direction, fantastic. I think it would be brilliant um, uh, to know one way or the other what happened because there's only learnings from either uh, origin route. What would you need to know, Ger? What What would scientists need to see to confirm this one way or the other? See, it's very difficult now to, because if we find an animal with SARS-CoV-2 in it now, uh, it's very easy to just say, well, that, that must have just come from a human. Yeah. It's, it's very hard at this point to find an animal and say that's the origin of it. Now, if we found a virus that was not circulating at all anywhere else in the world, but was perhaps 99.8% similar or 99.9% similar to SARS-CoV-2, then you might have a chance. We haven't found any virus that closely related to SARS-CoV-2 yet. If we did find, for example, I don't know, uh, uh, blood samples from prior to December 2019 in, you know, from people that worked in the lab or evidence of them working with a virus prior to December 2019 that was SARS-CoV-2, that they hadn't 
spoken about or that we hadn't seen evidence of prior to, then obviously then, you know, then you'd start to look at it and say, well, hang on a sec, if you're working with the virus prior to December and then suddenly there's an outbreak of that exact virus, we have to then draw conclusions that it must have got out of the lab. But we haven't seen anything even remotely close to that yet. So, Ger, essentially you're telling me that without some smoking gun, as you say, we'll never really know the true origin of the virus. I think at this point it's going to be very difficult. Unless, as I say, some new evidence comes out um, pointing towards, say, the lab leak theory, I think it's very difficult to be absolutely sure one way or another. As as I keep going back to, the evidence strongly suggests it came from an animal. That's, I think, where science is pointing. That's where the evidence is pointing. It's not pointing towards a lab leak. But I think the important thing is we can't absolutely discount one way or another either of them. But really what we should be probably thinking about is now learning from both, really. If it was a lab leak, are we sure that all our labs are working appropriately, that we're super safe in how we do things? And if it is an animal origin thing, we know that happens already, right? We have evidence for SARS-1. So what can we do going forward to stop that happening again? That, that's really what we need to do now. Not thinking about where did it come from, but how can we stop the next one? Well, that's very interesting because there is a potential next one, isn't there? A highly contagious avian flu is infecting birds all over the globe. Restrictions have been put in place around a turkey farm near the border in Clonus in County Monaghan after test results showed evidence of avian influenza in the flock. Just how concerned should we be about the two human cases of bird flu in Cambodia? Ger, we've been talking about zoonotic viruses. Right now, the bird flu pandemic is raging. In terms of transmission to other animals and the risk of it jumping from humans, I think it's it's gone from birds to mink now. Well, there's been cases in a number of different animals. We have had sea lions dying in South America. Uh, there's oh. mink, evidence of foxes having it. Uh, there's a whole host of animals that can pick up uh, avian influenza, unfortunately, and many of which will get very sick from it. Right, so the danger to humans? Flu is a, is a really effective virus at jumping species. And there's always a possibility that it will jump into humans, which I suppose would be our particular concern and evolve and learn how to move effectively between humans. Because at the moment, while there's been sporadic human cases, there's been no consistent transmission between humans of this version of avian influenza. But like any virus in this kind of category, like influenza, if you give it enough opportunities, uh, there's a high possibility that it will evolve and, and effectively learn how to spread in humans effectively. Is the science community sort of bracing or or sending out early warning signals that this is a potential risk that we need to be ready for? We know that H5N1 has the ability to infect humans. It's just about it evolving to be able to transmit between them. And it's not very far away from it. I think there's a high possibility that that can happen. But it's kind of like how long is a piece of string? We don't know exactly when. It could be 100 years. It could be uh, a month. We, you literally, you know, it's very hard to make these kind of predictions. But the key is to be alert, to be aware, and to to be, I suppose, uh, have a system in place that if if you start to see consistent transmission in humans, that you can react to it and try and shut it down more effectively than we were able to shut down COVID, for example. Mm. 
How likely do you think it is that we will be ready for something like that? I think we're in a much better position with the flu. Um, remember, with coronaviruses, we really were not in a position to defend against them. When COVID happened, the whole generally the human population was naive to coronaviruses of that level causing massive pandemic-type outbreaks. So we had no drugs really against them. We had no vaccines against them. Uh, with influenza, we're in a much better position, I think. Um, we see influenza every year. Granted, a, a pandemic version of influenza would be something slightly different, and that it would be a big challenge. But we know how to make effective vaccines against influenza, and we have a, a suite of drugs against influenza as well. And so, in a way, whatever version came out, I think we could react pretty quickly to it. I think the challenge would be, though, how quickly to stop uh, uh, large numbers of infections. How quickly can we react? How quickly can we get the public on board to another virus circulating? How quickly can we get people to get vaccinated? I think, in a way, COVID has created challenges to bring the public on board to another outbreak, to reacting effectively against it and, and, and taking it seriously, I suppose. But we have to accept the reality that you know, th there's always a possibility of, of the next virus coming around the corner. It, it, it hopefully will never impact us as greatly as, as COVID did. Um, but we have to be aware that we have to be alert to these things and be able to react to them effectively. Professor Gerald Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. For full access to Irish Times journalism, subscribe go to irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.